Philippians 1, verses 12 through 18. Let's get into the Word of God together. By the way, this is part two, so if you missed last week, well, hopefully you caught it online. If you didn't, you can always go back and, and catch it. I'll do very little review of that this morning. Verse 12, I want you to know, brothers or brothers and sisters, Paul writing to the church there in Philippi, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. I rejoice. I said this last week, but those words that I, uh, I just read, Paul's words there, are truly the words of, as one person put it, the words of one for whom Christ and the gospel are uppermost, are uppermost. A little bit of review, verses 12 and 14, which is what we covered last week. Paul's response, and I talked a lot about his response, it was the way he responded to his circumstances that made all the difference in the world. Paul's response to his incarceration, to his adversity, as it, were, as it was, helped advance the gospel, the message of Jesus Christ. And it did so in, in two, way, two ways we see there in the text. First, the gospel spread among the whole imperial guard. The imperial guard being a group of elite soldiers stationed in Rome. How did that happen? Well, some or even many of them of the Imperial Guard, would have rotated in four-hour shifts as they stood guard over Paul around the clock. It's possible they may have even been chained to him to keep an eye on him, as it will. And the soldiers were no doubt evangelized by Paul both directly, so every time a guard stood over them, he would, he would be sure to tell them why he was there, And it wasn't because of a violation of any law or sin on his part, but rather it was for his bold proclamation of Jesus Christ. And they would have been evangelized, these Roman soldiers, this imperial guard, indirectly as he spoke of Christ with those who came to visit him while he was there in Rome under house arrest. A little bit different, he was allowed to have visitors. And second, or the second way the gospel advanced because of his imprisonment and because of the way he responded to it, 
And we talked a lot about that last time, not becoming depressed or, or just woe is me or going silent. But second, the Christians in Rome became bolder in sharing Christ with others as they drew courage from Paul's example while he was under house arrest. Even to the imperial guard, this guy does not stop but continues to proclaim Christ. Even under arrest for the very thing that he's doing, he continues to do it. They saw Paul's confidence in the Lord, and their confidence in their Lord was also lifted up. And they too became that much bolder in making Christ known to that pagan community in Rome, which they were all pagan for the most part. As one uh, author put it, a literal rendering of the clause in the latter part of verse 14 goes like this, to a much greater degree they are daring to speak the word without fear. He goes on to say, surely the apostle's own attitude in his chains must have been largely responsible for these results. They saw how he responded, and it encouraged and strengthened them to make Christ known in an even greater way. Now, that was review. So now we're going to pick up where we left off. Verses 15 and 18 take a, an interesting turn of sorts. One writer puts it this way. In verse 14, we sense Paul's delight in the forward move of the gospel through the ministry of an awakened church there in Rome. But verses 15 through 18 open other windows into the state of affairs, and we learn that all was not quite so rosy. And let me add that these verses, these verses here, 15 through 18, I believe, further demonstrate what I have been stressing in one way or another about Paul. And that is, instead of being what all of fallen humanity is so prone to be, you know, self-centered, self-seeking, self-absorbed. You know what I'm talking about? Instead of being that way, Paul was very much instead Christ-centered, Christ-seeking. Christ absorbed. It seems to me that one of the questions that may have daily been on Paul's mind and, of course, driven by his deep affections for Christ was, was maybe this. Today, how can I make much of Christ? Not me, which may be the question that is more often on our minds. But how can I make much of, of Christ, that is, in these circumstances that I find myself in? In this situation, how can I make much of Christ? In this relationship, in this conversation, how can I make much of Christ? In this imprisonment, How can I make much 
Christ. And in doing that, in making much of Christ, Paul, regardless of the circumstances, was then able to rejoice because he found a way to always make much of Christ. And because he did that and could do that, he could have joy, true joy. Love, listen. By God's Spirit and the all-powerful, heart-changing, and life-altering grace of God, Paul had clearly, clearly been transformed into a person who steadily longed and lived not for himself, not for his own advancement, not for his own glory or honor, like most of the world does, but rather he lived for the glory, for the honor, and for the advancement of the one who is altogether worthy of such things. Altogether worthy, beloved, of our worship, our affection, our devotion, our service, our focus, our thoughts, our time, and our lives. And that one is, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the only one worthy of such things. For our good and God's glory, we who are followers of Christ should think seriously and deeply about Paul's Christian life. And strive, strive, earnestly strive by God's transforming grace to follow Paul's example. That's what we should do. That's what we should commit ourselves to. In fact, that's the very thing Paul tells us to do. He tells the church in Philippi to do that and us by extension, who are also the people of God. When he says in Philippians 4 9, and I mentioned this last time, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. Do what I do. And, and I said, I said, for our good we should strive, for our good we should strive to follow Paul's example. I said that because much much of our misery, beloved, much of our misery is the result of trying, trying, trying to make life about us. 
I know from watching. I know from personal experience. Today, how can I make much of me? But listen, beloved, listen. It was never meant to be that way. It was never meant to be that way. Sin has twisted things. Sin has distorted things. Sin has turned things upside down. It was always meant to be, always meant to be about Him. About our Lord. About our Creator. Beloved, we we were made for Him. Not the other way around. We were made for Him. To serve Him. To glorify Him. To bow before Him. To live for Him. Huh? Yeah, that's the truth. But sin has got us believing that life is for us. Life was given to us for Him. And so we will always be frustrated. Upset, angry, when we start out our day saying, how can I make much of me today? But if we will do what we were made to do, and of course, we will only do this if our heart has been changed, we have been born again. We only do it sincerely if if we are new creatures in Christ, if we have come to Christ, bowed our our hearts before him and and received the forgiveness that's available only in him, repenting of our sins and turning to him only then, being born again, would we even desire to do such things? But I would plead with anybody here who has not done that, who has not bowed their heart to Christ, do it! Otherwise you are going to continue in this path of misery. And and hopefully you'll see that God will open your eyes to the foolishness of living life apart from God or on your own or as you being the king. Hopefully you will see that, see the the ridiculousness of it. How's life going for you? How you doing? Because it's going to continue to get worse the more you pursue that. I hope you will see that and I hope you will bow to Christ and begin to live for him, which he empowers you to do that very thing so that, so that you might find true joy, true peace, true contentment, even in a broken and fallen world. Paul was in prison, or imprisoned, I should say, under house arrest. And yet the man was rejoicing. Why? Because he found the secret, if you will. That life wasn't about him. It was about his Lord. And even there, locked up, he could make it much about Christ. He could do what he was designed to do.
boy, we all need help. Because I haven't figured out yet how to make it so that I never wake up and say, today, how can I make it more about me? How can I make much about me? I haven't quite figured that. I'm looking forward to the day that that stupid thought never enters my head again. I am. But I'm also not okay with that thought. And so I'm fighting it. I hope you are too. I hope you're pushing that one far out into the trash where it belongs and saying, today, how can I make it much about Christ? It's the only way you're ever going to find true joy, beloved. I could keep going, and we could keep talking about all kinds of different situations where this applies, whether it be in a marriage, whether it be in your broken families, whether it be in your workplace. Good luck trying to find contentment if you walk into your workplace and say, how can I make it much about me? Good luck. Right? All the striving and strife that will take place, all the bitterness and anger that will flow up out of your heart. But I don't care what kind of workplace you have. If you, if you show up saying, how can I make this much about Christ today? In one way or another. Either, either by the way I live, or, and I would say and, by the way I live, and by the way I speak. Not just kindly, but about him. In one way or another. How can I make this much about him? How can I demonstrate that he is the center of my life? So back to verses 15 through 18. This is fascinating, this section here. And again, I, I believe it'll do exactly what I said. It'll prove just the kind of person Paul was. And, and again, when I say that, not that he was born in a, in a way that he's more special, but rather how grace had worked in his life to bring him to this place, which means it can work in our lives to bring us to this place as well. Verse 15, listen, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry. Another translation says, some, to be sure, are preaching Christ from envy and rivalry. Yep. But others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. Another translation. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. That's the New American Standard. Verse 18. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Based on the context, it appears that Paul is speaking here of brothers and sisters in Christ in Rome who, as a result of Paul's bold witness while incarcerated in Rome, had been stirred up even more to preach Christ. And they were doing just that. But some of the brothers and sisters proclaiming Christ, Paul says, had impure motives for preaching Christ. As you just saw, Paul speaks here of envy, and rivalry, and selfish ambition, and even states that in their preaching of Christ, they thought 
somehow that they could afflict pain on Paul or cause him distress in his imprisonment. Now, someone might think, what? How can that be? But it shouldn't be a surprise to anyone that Christians can behave very badly. Just stick around them long enough, you'll find out. It shouldn't surprise anyone that a Christian can be envious or jealous or act according to selfish ambition or even attempt in some way to wound or bring pain into the life of another brother or sister in Christ. I mean, Christian husbands and wives do it all the time, unfortunately. Or it shouldn't surprise us that they might do a truly good thing, Christians, but have mixed or impure or twisted motives for doing that good thing. You telling me you've never done that? Hmm. And if you doubt that, just read 1 Corinthians. Just read. There's another letter you can read. Really, uh, yeah, sometimes you're reading it and you go, are these people Christian? Uh, yeah, you know. But, but that's the thing of sanctification. That's the thing of transformation. That's the thing of the change that God does in a Christian's life. It doesn't happen right when they get converted. It begins at conversion and then continues. And for some, it's slow. I'm just going to say, for all, it's slow. There might be moments of very quick changes, and they're glorious, and they're wonderful, but the rest seems to be rather drawn out, and it's incremental, step by step, inch by inch, and, and yeah, that, that's the life. So Christians are in different places in their process of being changed and having their affections captured for Christ and loving Him and serving Him with their heart. Maybe it's some of their heart, maybe not yet all of their heart, a portion of their heart, a half of their heart, but they are regularly divided in different ways, and their heart is an idol factory, continually spitting them out to cause them to divert them toward lesser God, a lesser God who is not a God at all, away from the one and true and only God. That's Christianity. And so this, this need not surprise anybody that these are Christians Paul speaks of. Speaking about these Christians who had impure motives, one writer says, on the one hand, they were apparently faithful gospel preachers. Why do we know that? Because Paul would have said otherwise. If these guys were preaching a false gospel, a twisted gospel, a distorted gospel, believe you me, Paul doesn't mess around. Read Galatians. He would have said so. But he doesn't say anything like that. So on the one hand, they were apparently faithful gospel preachers preaching Christ. Committed, this writer says, to declare a selfless, self-sacrificing Christ. A Christ 
intent upon the eternal good of all whom he died to save. On the other hand, they privately and secretly indulged a different set of values, self-seeking, self-regarding, moved by desire to hurt one whom Christ had died to save. They were double-minded. I also want to add this, okay, to drive home my point about Paul all the more. This is just a personal thing not found here in the text. In my own experience, in my own experience, maybe you have found this to be true too, but in my own experience, I have found that the wounds of a Christian brother or sister cut much deeper than those of the lost. Those who do not know Christ. And I have even found it to be, in some situations, I'm speaking personally, a greater struggle to truly forgive and not give in to the temptation, because it's there, to be bitter toward them or angry with them. On one level, I can almost set aside those who don't know Christ and them wounding me because what else are they going to do? They haven't been transformed yet. They don't have a new heart. I find it easier, if you will, to forgive, to let, let it go, to overlook it. But a brother or sister in Christ? And I'm not saying it's right. I'm just expressing my experience, which is probably a familiar experience with other brothers and sisters as well. You're not going to believe what he or she did. They're a Christian. That. On one hand, we have this love that we share together. On the other hand, what is happening? But I said all that to say this. We see no hint of that with Paul. No bitterness. Not angry. So what exactly is their problem with the Apostle Paul? What is their problem? And why did they preach Christ hoping in part to cause Paul some type of pain? Are you serious? Or distress because of his imprisonment? So let me say this, and we shouldn't get so wrapped up in trying to answer this question. And the reason I say that is because there is no answer. Uh, the text doesn't give us one. Historically, we don't know. We, we don't know. So there's lots of guessing. And some of it's better than other guessing. Trying to figure out what exactly it is. But, but what, you, what you must see is that they did have a problem with Paul. And they did look to harm him in some way, even through the preaching of the gospel. Okay? That's what you need to know, these Christian brothers and sisters. But let me read a few things to give some idea of maybe what was going on. One writer says that they preach Christ and that Paul found no fault with the content of their message, message shows that their problem was not primarily doctrinal, but personal. It was between them and Paul. 
They were not unbelievers or perverters of Christian truth. They were self-seeking opportunists, promoting themselves at Paul's expense. Perhaps they had enjoyed some prominence in the church there in Rome before he arrived, the big apostle, but had been eclipsed since he came into the city. Now everyone wants to go see him. I mean, can you imagine a Christian talking like that or thinking like that? Yes, unfortunately, yeah, because their sinners still in progress. You know, they're not yet glorified, right? By taking advantage, the writer says, of Paul's imprisonment, they may have hoped to recover their former popularity. They may have supposed that he would be bitterly resent their success out preaching the gospel and crowds are gathering and whatever, just as they did his, his success, if you will. And his imprisonment would become all the more galling to him. But the writer says, if so, if that's what they assumed or thought, they failed to reckon with the greatness of the man. And I would say the greatness of the man because of the God's grace in his life that had transformed him and brought him to this place where it wasn't about him. So, so, go on hating as long as you go on proclaiming. Christ. That's what? Yeah. Another writer says, did they envy Paul's great gifts or the success that had attended his ministry? Were their noses out of joint because when he came to Rome, he rightly became an apostolic focus for the church there? We could go on guessing, but arrive at nothing more than a guess, for Paul shares no tittle-tattle. He doesn't get into the details. That's not the purpose here. He's not trying to, he doesn't call them out by name either, which he does of false teachers or those who are a real threat to the church. He doesn't do that. He just says, yeah, there's some out there doing it for the wrong reasons, looking actually to hurt me, thinking they can. But as long as Christ is being advanced, I rejoice. Another writer says this, the most satisfactory explanation of Paul's words is to regard the opposition to the apostle as one of personal animosity and rivalry. His coming to Rome had worked for the advance of the gospel in the city, but there were differences of outlook, outlook among the various groups of Christians at Rome. Some were apparently antagonistic to Paul and preached Christ from a spirit of envy and rivalry with no worthier motive than to rub salt into his wounds and so add to the sense of frustration that he might well fell in his restricted circumstances. In other words, look, he was looking to get to Rome, okay? This is his first time there. So he's looking to get there. He had written to Rome, the Christians in Rome, that letter called Romans, but he had not been there. He's looking to get there, to the capital, the empire, and make Christ known as he had been doing throughout the world at that time. But he's going to take it right to the heart of paganism. And he's going to bring the one and only true God. He's looking to get there. He's excited to get there and do what he does, which is engage with the Jews, with the Gentiles, with the crowds, right? That's what he does. He loves it. I should say he loves Christ. And so he loves advancing Christ. That's better said. Because if he loved it then the fact that it was taken away from him, he'd start to freak out. But he loves Christ. 
And he loves doing whatever he can to make Christ known, but now he's locked up for no fault of his own. He can have visitors, but he's not out and about. He's not free. Did these guys think, you know what, emboldened by what he was doing, said, you know what, Paul, they have an issue with him. We're not sure what it is, but look at us. We're out here. We're out here making him known. Look at the crowds coming to us. Are you kidding? You're preaching. You see, you're preaching a gospel, but then you have emotions and feelings and motivations that are completely contrary to the very gospel you're preaching, but they were still preaching the gospel. Like I said, what prompted this personal rivalry, we do not know. Another writer says this. This one will show up on the screen. The preachers in the Roman church were of two sorts differentiated by their attitude towards the apostle. The one group consisted of those who felt genuine goodwill towards him, and all their Christian activity was motivated by love for him, as we see there in the text, springing out of their knowledge that he was put there for the defense of the gospel. Are you guys kidding? He's not there for any wrong that he's done. This is not somehow the judgment of God upon his life. He's there for preaching the gospel. And that's the very thing he desires to do that he has been doing, making Christ known in a very large way. On the other side, though, stood those who worked in order to afflict Paul in his imprisonment. Listen, now this, as I read this and worked through it and so on and so forth, you know, again, it's like a little shocking when you think about that. Who would have a problem with the Apostle Paul? Well, the truth is, folks did. Even back then. Now, for us, it's a little more, I, you know, the only people that I know personally who have a problem with the Apostle Paul are Jews who refuse to bow to Christ. They actually have a real problem with the Apostle Paul. They call him a traitor. He was a Jewish man, and they believe that he turned against the faith, Judaism, which that's not the case. He had his eyes open to the truth, and now he serves, he served and honored Christ, and now he's with Christ. So, but for the most part, the, the 21st century church, we, we lift, you've heard me do it many times, we lift Paul up. You know, we have all of his letters, we, we to one degree, exalt Paul. You know, he's, we have affections for him. Wow, Paul, Paul, Paul. But just so you know, as you read through the letters you learn that he wrote, you, you learn that not everyone really liked him. Um, he was bringing Christianity, you know, into the world. And uh, there was Jewish and Gentile conflicts, and there was debates and disputes, and, and, he, he, and he, he, he didn't mince words. When someone stepped out of line, he dealt with them, and, and he, was, he was strong on the gospel. And, and I, don't, I don't know the man personally, you know? I don't know, maybe he had some weird hiccups or something that, not hiccups <gasps> like that, but like weird things and habits in his life. I don't know, you know, maybe he rubbed people the wrong way. I don't know. The other thing is, just remember this, he used to, like, kill church people, right? And so, when he came to Christ, there was always this question even about, and, and Christ came to him, I should say, and put him in his position of apostle, authorized representative. There were those constantly questioning whether they should trust Paul. This guy killed Christians. No, but he's seen the light. Really? Yes, Yes, he's been born again. Are you sure? Yes. And they question even his authority. 
that Christ had given him. And so he's always working against this, always people challenge, even in the church, beloved, even in the church. And you'll see him even making the case for his apostleship and maybe going to great lengths to, to, to try to prove so that people, so we could get through that hurdle so that you can listen to me because I have a message from Jesus for you, right? So that's going on, all that's going on. Whatever. Not everyone loved Paul. And I'm not saying that's right. I'm just saying that's what it was. Some of them actually had a real problem with them for whatever reason. And here was their opportunity in some way to, they thought, maybe stick it to them. So again, it's not, none of that's good, but it is that way. To one degree or another, that's because we're not yet perfected. We're not yet glorified. The church is filled with a bunch of messy people. Okay? Concerning the other people, those who felt genuine goodwill towards Paul, the other group, one writer says, they saw this. They knew why he was there. They knew what he desired to do, so they stepped into the gap left by Paul's imprisonment and carried on his work of gospel preaching because they desired to help Paul by continuing his mission. You came here to preach. You're imprisoned at the time. We'll pick up the mantle and run with it, baby. They sought to express their love for Paul by their faithful proclamation of the gospel. They actually were fond of Paul. Their, their heart was united with Paul in Christ and for Christ and for the gospel. And emboldened by his imprisonment and how he responded to that imprisonment and knowing that he wasn't placed there for any fault of his own, but simply because he preached the gospel and knowing his heart to make the gospel known there in Rome, they all the more stepped in and began to fill the gap, if you will. One writer says, recognition of the nature of Paul's imprisonment, as we, I said that he was put there for the defense of the gospel, caused many stalwart Christians to respond out of love for him and for the cause that he represented. They stepped into the breach and took their stand with him, eager to ensure that the gospel did not fall, fail to be proclaimed while Paul was there in prison. Okay, so two groups. They're both preaching, okay? They're both in a, in a more bolder way, but the group of one, the motives for the one are good and pure, and the, group, the, the other group, they're not pure motives. And in fact, they're actually using the opportunity to either you know, advance themselves and clearly to hurt Paul. They thought. That's what they thought. They thought that they might be able to stick it to him, that that would bother him. And then we come to verse 18. So he just states that. What then? Okay, I told you. Very excited the gospel's going forth. Yes, I know. There's some that are doing it for the wrong reasons. They have impure motives. There are others who are doing it for the right reasons. Some look to hurt me. Some are supporting me and my cause to make Christ known to all of Rome. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, you could translate that, whether from false motives or true, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. 
Let me give you another translation of that verse. But what does it matter? Here is the important thing. And it's not me. Now, that's not in the, that's not in the translation. It's me now. It's me talking. And it's not me. And it's not me. And it's not me. It's not me. Here's the important thing. Whether for reasons that are right or wrong, Christ is being preached about. That makes me very glad. You see that? Would that be your response? You won't believe what these people are doing. Someone needs to get a whip and set them straight. Do they know who I am? How dare they? While I'm in these difficult circumstances, they would treat me like this? <laughs> no, nothing like that. Nothing like that. Nothing like that. A totally different focus. One writer says this, Paul's conclusion, but what does it matter? reveals his sense of values. The importance of the gospel and its proclamation so outweighed any personal considerations that he would not cloud the issue by insisting on settling personal grievances. He was convinced that Christ is preached even by these preachers whose motives were suspect and so therefore he rejoiced. I imagine Paul maybe saying something like this. These are my words. You know what? Not all of my brothers and sisters in Christ are fond of me. Some indeed harbor sinful feelings toward me and think wrongly about me. And they are using their freedom to preach the gospel to try to wound me while I'm under house arrest. But what does it matter? Here is the important thing. The gospel is advancing. Christ, who is all important, is being made known. Even through these less than perfect vessels. My brothers and sisters, Paul's still talking, I assume, here. As I am, my brothers and sisters, as I am, are not yet glorified, not yet perfected. But God will continue to transform us, and he will finish the good work he started, which is another passage we find later in the letter. Now listen, Paul was certainly not condoning sinful attitudes or actions, okay? He wasn't saying, it doesn't matter that they sin. He's, he's saying, this is what matters most. This is what's really important. And though they, their heart is not right, entirely right, and though they even seek to hurt me, what matters most is the gospel is going forth. It's not about me. But he's not condoning their, their actions. And for all we know, and we don't, maybe he personally addressed these folks. I don't know. 
Or maybe it was just one of those occasions where it was what it was. I mean, I, I know of situations where even within a church body, there are folks who, for whatever reason, they just don't play well together. They, they both love Christ, but they're not fond of one another. And of course, it takes... You can't just go up to two people and, and say, hey, you like him, and you like him, and do it. You, it doesn't, that doesn't work. It doesn't work. You can talk to them about their heart. You can talk to them about the condition of their heart. But sometimes, you know, sometimes it takes time, often, for God to work through. And sometimes he may even bring additional discipline into their lives to help them see the error of their ways. But sometimes you just have to say, do your best to live with peace, live at peace with all men, even within a local body. Be nice, right? Be nice. And so maybe it was just one of those where it was what it was. There wasn't much that Paul could even personally do about the situation. But it wasn't a situation that rose to the top of the priority chain. I've got to do something about this. No, not for Paul. It wasn't like that. But unfortunately for us, that is exactly what happens. Do you know why? Someone hurts us. Someone wounds us. Someone doesn't have pure motives concerning us or something they do, right? And what happens? That is the only thing that we can think about. That is, that is the all-consuming thing. Why? 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 Because you woke up and you said, how can I make today much about me? And this person is getting in the way of it. And that can't happen. So I'm going to keep screaming until something else happens. And go scream, scream. Because as soon as you get that problem fixed, and you may not, there'll be another one, trust me. Because people do dumb things to each other. They hurt each other. They wound each other. And again, that's not okay. But if life is about something else besides you then you, like a duck, can let the water run off your back. The water being those assaults and wounds. And you're like, whatever, I'm a duck, right? I'm a duck, and it's not about me. I don't know what it is for a duck. I don't know, maybe it is for the duck, it's about, I don't know, even for the duck, all of creation singing out, it is about Christ. I'm a duck, what? Right? Get over yourself. Get over yourself. If anybody had the right to be, and Paul even says this in another place, you want to brag? Okay, I'll do this foolish thing and brag. If anybody had the right to, hey, look at me and brag, it was the Apostle Paul. But he knew, he knew in his heart because of the work that God did in his heart that it wasn't about him and he was nothing apart from Christ. So get over yourself. It's not about you. And I think, I think that the reason that's inserted because you could have left 15 through 17 out. He didn't have to even bring it up. He could have just said, and the gospel is advancing, and in that I rejoice. But he brings this up. Why? Well, as we shall see, and as I explained to you, there were internal problems in the church in Philippi. There were, this is a good church who had been good partners in the gospel and they cared about Christ, and they cared about the apostle of Christ, and they were looking to advance Christ. Good church. But there was trouble a-brewing in that church, some eternal conflicts. We don't know exactly what they were. He even calls out two ladies in the church and says, 
they need to get together. They need to, they need to this needs to be sorted out, right? But I'm going to say this, maybe, maybe, look, don't lose your focus, folks. Don't get so worked up, so caught up in your eternal little problems or this brother did this or this sister did this. Okay, and yes, you follow the other instructions that we find in Scripture. If, if you can't overlook it, you go to them and you talk to them. But what then? Yes. You go through the process, sure. But a lot of the bitterness and resentment and church leaving often is because ultimately it's about you. Honestly, it's about you. And so you're mad and you're offended. And that does so much damage to the advance of the gospel. You know, it's like a wave that's building and building and momentum is growing and then it's just cut out, just ripped, and it loses all the power and force. And that is what happens in equivalency when just all the infighting and bickering and are you kidding? Why don't you say, how can I make this situation more about Christ? Well, here's how you can do it. Show love. Forgive. Look the other way and put your eyes where they belong, on Christ. But you won't do that. You won't do that and I won't do that if it's not really about Christ, but it's about me. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the lessons that we can draw from it. Thank you for this church. I thank you for this local body. And Father, we, uh, we are not special. We are like all the other churches. We too can have problems. But we are looking to you. We're trusting in you. And Father, I hope that you'll continue to do a good work in us. Might we be able to really focus in on, on the important thing. May we live life not for us, but for him. Father, help us to get to a place where we do actually, actually think, how, how, how today, how today, how right now can I make much of Christ? Help me to forget self and remember him. Help me to die to self and live for him. Help us, Father. It is clear that that is what you made us to do. You, you designed us for that very purpose, that we might live for and serve and honor and adore our Lord Jesus Christ. But that becomes very difficult when we keep making everything about us. In Jesus' name, amen.